book of Ezekiel, <coughs> page uh, 820, I believe, in the pew copy. You may think I'm over-accessorized this morning. I have a few additions to my tie. That's what happens when you teach four- and five-year-olds. Um, but I thought it might be a good time to remind you that we do have a wonderful Sunday school opportunity here. If you or your children are not involved, you should be. You're missing a blessing if you have an opportunity to interact with the kids. We certainly get a blessing when we're doing it. We team teach, and uh, so we don't have them every week, but we miss them when we don't have them. And if you're uh, not praying for our teachers, do that. And if you're not attending as a scholar yourself, you need to do that as well. It's a great blessing. Ezekiel, a prophet, I think it's about the year 592. He's sitting in exile in Babylon. And suddenly he has these visions from heaven. And we read this in uh, chapter 1, verse 4. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched each other. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of each creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. Creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome. And all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. When the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would rise along with them. Because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. 
spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse of their wings were snatched out one toward the other, and stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. And when they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on that throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if the... It was in 1972, and I was a junior in high school, and I was in that uh, what do I really believe about life, the world, and God stage in my life, exploring all sorts of ideas. It was during that year that I came across a little book that just fascinated me. It was called Chariots of the Gods by Eric Von Doniken. Some of you baby boomers may remember it. And quite simply, the thesis of the book was that the technologies and religions of many ancient civilizations were given to them by aliens from outer space who were welcomed as gods. And he supported his argument uh, by pointing to various mysterious artifacts, including the Egyptian pyramids, the ring of stones at Stonehenge in England, the strange statues of Easter Island in the South Pacific. And in addition, Dunnekin contended that the traditions of most religions contain references to visitors from the stars and vehicles traveling through air and space. These, he said, should be interpreted as literal descriptions which have changed during the passage of time and become more obscure and more religious. And one of his prime examples, you might have guessed, was Ezekiel's vision on the passage we just read, which he interpreted as a detailed description of a landing spacecraft. Now, this idea was actually picked up by a former NASA design engineer named Joseph Bloomrich, who wrote a book called The Spaceships of Ezekiel. Bloomrich provided illustrations of what this spaceship must have looked like, and he outlined how it could be explained scientifically. Now, as I said, I was intrigued by this sort of thing during that phase of my life. And I admit there still is something enthralling to me about the thought of contact with an extraterrestrial world. And I know I'm not alone in in that feeling. I mean, every year there must be a dozen new movies based on that theme. It's a staple topic of science fiction, isn't it? And you have to admit, if there were some mysterious UFO that descended from the clouds, we would be both fascinated by it and frightened to death. 
And I do find it interesting that apart from the movie E.T., every alien movie I've ever seen involves some violent conflict with these aliens, doesn't it? Now, I, I, I don't for a moment uh, believe in Donegan's thesis, but there was something that still I find interesting about the book. And I'm sure it was part of my path in becoming a Christian. It was the idea that we're not alone. That there really must be something beyond us. That we could indeed have contact with, with another world. A world as mysterious and as menacing as that, that might be to us. Now, I don't buy Danikin's interpretation of Ezekiel's vision. But I do think the basic idea is not that far off. Ezekiel saw something that did not fit the categories of anything he ever had or could have experienced here on earth. But you see, Danica just didn't go far enough for what Ezekiel saw was far greater than just some alien from another galaxy. No, what he saw was from outside this created universe altogether. It came from beyond the heavens. It came from heaven itself. Ezekiel saw heaven open. He saw visions of God. He had what we call a theophany, a visible manifestation of the invisible God's glorious presence. These were visions which were at the same time far more mysterious and far more menacing than anything Danakin could ever have imagined. So this morning, I want us to consider what Ezekiel saw. And then I want us to reflect on what it means for us as we try to understand what this vision communicates about the God that we worship. If someone asks whether the vision is clear, wrote John Calvin, I confess it is very obscure and I do not profess to understand it. Understanding this vision is difficult, but part of the difficulty comes in thinking that we should be able to understand it at all. Ezekiel himself didn't. What he sees, this glory of God, it's beyond his ordinary experience. He can't quite grasp it. He can't put it into a nice, neat little box. He can hardly even put it into words. And I'm told by the Hebrew scholars that study this more than I, that even the grammar is kind of disjointed. It's short, choppy sentences. It, 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 it has the appeal of, of the, the reflection of somebody who's grappling with something that he can't quite understand. I liken it to trying to describe a dream. You, you, you sort of know what you saw in a dream, but it's hard to describe. You can only use the analogy, the language of analogy. It was sort of like this. And that's what Ezekiel does. In fact, he uses the word like in some form in the Hebrew 17 times. He's like one of those valley girls who is like, you know, really like hard to understand. Ezekiel seems to be saying, I will try to tell you what I saw, but it was not quite like that. And then as in a dream, the images you see are often related to other images that happen to be floating around in your head at the time. Or at least that's how you perceive what you dreamed. And then how you felt about what you dreamed is probably more powerful in your mind than the visible images themselves. Now, the, the things that Ezekiel sees in this vision cannot be described as, as they really are because Ezekiel doesn't really know what they really are. He can only speak in terms of other familiar 
ideas and concepts. It was, it was like the things that he may have seen or experienced. And as in dreams, you see, it's full of bizarre stuff that you, you might see in a fantasy movie. Uh, Susan and I uh, watched the movie Inception the other night. Some of you may have seen that. It was a fitting preparation for this passage in Ezekiel. The movie is all about dreams and dreams within dreams. And it's very clear in that movie that dreams do not obey the laws of physics or the rules of logic. And so it is with this vision, which means that we shouldn't think that we can actually recreate in our heads exactly what Ezekiel saw. What he gives is more like a, a, an impressionist painting than a photograph. And its total impact is more important than the minute details. And so with that in mind, let's look at Ezekiel's description. As he says in chapter 1, verse 4, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north. Now, storms generally come from the north in that part of the world, just as ours generally come from the west. But the north is also the traditional direction from which Israel's enemies attack them, which could lend an ominous mood to all that follows. He sees an immense cloud with flashing lightning. Now, that's frightening, but not too unusual in itself. But then presumably as it gets closer, he sees that this is no ordinary windstorm. It is surrounded by brilliant light, he said. And in the center is a raging white hot fire, this flame that looked like glowing metal, the kind of glowing metal you'd see in a blacksmith's furnace when it's, it's heated by the pumping of the bellows. And in the fire, Ezekiel sees what looks like four living creatures. Now, 14 months later in chapter 10, after he'd had some time to reflect upon this experience, Ezekiel gives a slightly clearer explanation of what he saw. But there, you see, he describes these figures as cherubim, cherubim. Cherubim is the Hebrew plural form of the noun cherub. You've heard of cherubs. The picture in our heads of little cherubs usually comes from Western art where cherubs or cherubim are depicted as chubby little naked babies with wings sometimes holding harps, hovering around devotional scenes of the saints of the Bible. This is not at all the biblical picture of a cherub. A cherubim are first found in the Bible when God casts Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, and cherubim are posted as sentries at the entrance, along with this flaming sword to bar access to the tree of life. And then in the book of Exodus, the Lord instructed Moses in the design of the sacred tent of worship to put statues of two cherubim over the cover of the sacred Ark of the Covenant, which was placed in the Holy of Holies. You see, cherubim were guardians of the holiness of God. And we don't really know what they look like. But angelic figures of this sort were also found in other ancient cultures in Egypt. I think of the famous Sphinx with the body of a lion and a human head that guarded the temple of the gods and the final resting place of the kings. And in Babylonian religion, we know figures similar to what Ezekiel describes, massive statues that stood outside Mesopotamian temples with, with the bodies of a bull and the wings of an eagle and the head of a lion, the uh, head of a man. They, they, they held up the throne of the gods and they guarded the royal palaces and defended the empire. 
These images could already have been in Ezekiel's mind as he tried to give some account of what he had seen. And perhaps if I had seen such a vision, I, I might have described them like, like huge, bulky NFL linemen or something. I don't know. So in verses 5 to 14, Ezekiel tries to describe these living creatures. He says their basic shape was like that of a man. But their feet were like that of a calf. They had four faces and four wings. They, they seemed to, to stand with their backs toward one another, facing four directions, with their wings upstretched, uh, touching each other at each corner, kind of in a square. And the face that, that faced out was like that of a man. The face that faced to the right was that, like that of a lion, to the left like that of an ox, and that toward the center was like that of an eagle. Such were their faces, he said. And I think this suggests that, that these living creatures somehow combined in themselves the most noble traits of all the creatures that God had made. The courage and ferocity of the lion, the most noble of the, of the wild beasts, the strength, the fertility, of the ox, the most noble of the domesticated animals, the swiftness of the eagle, the most noble of the birds and the divine dignity of the human being, the most noble creature of all. And there were four creatures with four faces facing in four directions. The number four seems significant. It reflects the, the four points of the compass, the four winds, the four corners of the earth. This, the, the, the deity that was attended by these guardians is, is sovereign in all directions. And there were four wings. And he says later in verse 24 that, that when they moved, the wings made a thundering noise. It was like the roar of a mighty waterfall. Have you ever been in the basin below Niagara Falls? The pounding of the water, you can hardly hear yourself think. Or he says it's like the tumult of an army. I, I've never been on a battlefield. I've heard some pretty loud football stadiums. Or, or he says it was like the voice of God himself. The sound must have been deafening. Verse 13, the appearance of the living creatures was like like burning coals of fire, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like, like flashes of lightning. You see, unlike those static figures of Babylonian art, these fiery creatures, they were alive. They were in constant motion. But it was a strange kind of motion. It was in constant flux, flashing here and there. It, it, it makes me think of the electrons of an atom. Somehow they're there, but you can't exactly pinpoint where they are. It's almost amazing that Ezekiel could describe these creatures at all. They were moving in any direction, but without turning, kind of like a queen on a chessboard. And how is it possible? It wasn't their legs or even their wings that moved them. And here Ezekiel looks below these creatures into one of the most notable features of the vision. Verse 15, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They, they sparkled like chrysolite, which is an amber-colored gemstone. And all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. You see, this is where we get that expression, wheels within wheels. Describes a situation that is complicated, that's affected by secret and indirect influences. It's a situation that's convoluted, difficult to understand. 
And that's what we have here. One wheel is somehow within another wheel, perhaps uh, intersecting like this, perhaps like a gyroscope. We're not sure exactly what it means. But the, the presence of wheels gives this whole apparatus, a kind of chariot-like feel. And one second century B.C. writer actually uses this term to describe it. He wrote, it was Ezekiel who saw the vision of glory, which God showed him above the chariot of the cherubim. These wheels were a mystery. But it's interesting, they do reappear in Daniel's picture of the throne of God. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, Daniel writes, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, his hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. But the wheels don't exactly provide the locomotion. That actually comes by the spirit, the spirit of life, which is ultimately the spirit of God. The whole scene seems to be pulsing with the power of God. And the main point here, it seems to me, is that these wheels enabled the four interlocking creatures to move in any direction without appearing to swivel or turn around. Ezekiel depicts something with total unrestricted freedom of movement, pointing to the freedom of the Lord himself. To be ever present, always there. It was a stunning sight. These rims, they were high and they were awesome. And all all four rims were full of eyes all around. Usually a symbol of God's all-seeing power and omniscience. Nothing escapes his gaze. And then in verse 22, Ezekiel's eyes rise upward above the four living creatures. And spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice, or perhaps better, crystal and and awesome. He speaks of this expanse. Uh, The word there is used of the, the dome of the heavens. It's what you see when you look up at night or in the sky. It's like like the stars are kind of placed there on this dome that surrounds the earth. It's the dwelling place of the stars. But being made of crystal, you see, the prophet could see through this dome to look at what what, what was beyond it, what was beyond the stars, into heaven itself. And this dome of the heavens provides a kind of platform to what is above it. Verse 26, above the expanse, over their heads, was what looked like a magnificent throne. The throne was brilliant, rich blue, as though constructed from one of the most precious gemstones of the ancient world. It was was probably not sapphire, but lapis lazuli. I I don't really know what that is, but it's where we get the deep blue color ultramarine. This is the glorious heavenly throne, symbolizing the place from which our God rules the universe. But there's more. And here he comes to the climax of the whole vision. And high above, he writes, on the throne was a figure like that of a man. Now, it's kind of an odd reversal. In the beginning, man is created in God's image. And here God appears to Ezekiel in the image like that of a man. But what other image could he use possibly to depict who God is? I mean, after all, human beings are the only personal creatures we know of in the universe. 
And this is a personal God. And I, I find it interesting, even in the movies, that uh, it, it seems that the more personal they want to make the aliens appear, the more human-like they are. But this was no ordinary man on this throne. Verse 27. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up. He, he, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And then from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. We can't help but think of the risen and glorified Christ described in some similar way in the book of Revelation. And only now does it seem that Ezekiel realized what he's looking at. As he says it in verse 28, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This figure upon the throne attended by these four living creatures in all his awesome display of fiery glory. This was no Babylonian deity. This is the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. The city of Jerusalem had been attacked. Israel's king and many of her citizens had been taken into exile, but their God was very much alive and well on the throne, even here in Babylon. Ezekiel had been given a glimpse of the magnificent glory of God. Glory. Glory. Glory is a Hebrew word that, uh, the Hebrew word kavod, which connotes weight or substance. And God's kavod, His glory, is the outward expression of His majestic reality. It's the overwhelming power of His presence. It's the weight of His eternal being. And everything about this vision proclaims the glory of God. The violent windstorm, the mysterious living creatures, the flashing lightning, the dazzling brilliance, the glowing metal, the gleaming bronze, the sparkling crystalline dome, the deep blue throne, the fiery form, that human-like image that sits upon it. That's what Ezekiel saw when he gazed upon what he could only describe as the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, he says, I fell face down. His life would never be the same. So what are we to make of all this? What does it mean to us? What what, what does it tell us about our God and his glory? I want to highlight four dimensions of this glory of God, with the last being perhaps the most important. And first, I think we should understand quite simply that our God is beyond us. He is beyond us. And by that, I simply mean that we need to get over the idea that we can comprehend God. That we should be able to understand everything there is to know about him. That we should be able to to fit God into our neat little conceptions of what he should be like. You see, this vision of God, it's weird. It's fantastic. No wonder people think it comes out of science fiction. It is that way simply because God is an alien to us. He is beyond us. There is something about him that will always remain incomprehensible to us. And honestly, I encounter people all the time who don't seem to get this. They think that if there's something they can't understand about God, then they won't believe it. It can't be true. Oh, I don't understand how God would do that or why God would do that. I I just couldn't believe in that kind of a God. But, but why should we think 
that God should be simple, easy to understand. I mean, nothing else in our world is like that. I mean, think about this pulpit right here. It's not simple, easy to understand. I mean, if you move from the wood that it's made of to the molecules that make up the wood, to the atoms that make up the molecules, to the subatomic particles that make up the atoms, you go deeper and deeper into the unknown. In the end, all you can say is this pulpit is somehow made up of energy, whatever that is. We don't know. And if something as simple as this pulpit is mysterious, how about a living, breathing human being? I mean, I, I can't even understand myself, much less my wife. And how much more when we think about God, who simply wills all things into being? Why should we ever think that he should be easy to understand? I mean, isn't this the central issue in the book of Job, in that story? Everybody thought they had God figured out. And, and God had to challenge that notion in the end by just raising a few pointed questions. And Job finally shuts his mouth. He comes to the conclusion, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. Our God is beyond us. He comes from beyond this world, this solar system, this galaxy, this universe. He comes from another realm altogether. And because of that, quite naturally, it seems to me, there will be things in the Bible. There will be things in this world. There will be things in your life that God in his wisdom does. That you will simply not be able to understand. Get over it. Our God is beyond us. But though God is far above us, Ezekiel's vision also declares that our God is with us. He's with us. And the image of the vision, uh, the image of the vision speaks to that in all sorts of ways. Our, our God is not static. He's not stuck in some temple somewhere, confined and limited in his sphere of influence. He, he certainly wasn't simply present only back in Judea. Because here he was. By the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. In this place where he seemed to have been defeated and dishonored and distant, here was the Lord, the God of Israel, in all his glory. He's on the move, this God, in all directions, all the time. And so I ask you, is there any place where you think God isn't? Any place where you think somehow it's, it's outside his boundaries? Like at your job, or like in your school, or in your home, is God absent from those places? No. No, that's ludicrous. This transcendent God is also imminent. This God from afar is also near, always, everywhere. His eyes see all that is, things visible and invisible, your actions and your intentions, your deeds and your thoughts. Nothing escapes his gaze. Our God is with us. Everywhere. Always. There's a third dimension of this vision to consider, and that is that our God is over us. When Ezekiel sees heaven open and he enters into the inner recesses of the heavenly realms, when he goes behind the curtain into this sphere of ultimate reality, what does he see? 
he sees a throne. A throne. Our God rules over us. He rules over everything. Though served by an angelic host, he sits alone on that throne. As someone has said, these four most lordly of creatures that surround him are merely the bearer of the Lord of Lords. And of course, Ezekiel needed to see this. See, here he was among a people in exile, a people that had been defeated by the awesome power of Babylon. Israel was just a tiny vassal state, a mere plaything in the hands of these world empires. So how powerful could her God be? Who was the Lord Yahweh among the gods of the Babylonians? Ezekiel needed to see that he was indeed on the throne. And from that throne, he rules the universe. Do you need to see that? You sometimes think things really are just kind of out of control. You watch the news in the Middle East, the chaos in Egypt. Nuclear threat from Iran. Or maybe you think, oh, things have just gone out of control in this country. Budget deficits, even worse, a moral deficit. Mounting to levels you thought never, never could be possible. Or in your own life, are your circumstances too confusing, too conflicted for even God to sort out? No. Ezekiel. Saw the Lord God on the throne. He's never moved from that throne. He is there even now as I speak. He rules over us and his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. We have his promise. And finally, and most importantly, Ezekiel's vision declares that our God is frightfully holy. It began with a violent windstorm. That's threatening enough. But it quickly becomes a vision full of fire and flashing lightning and glowing metal and burnished bronze and burning coals. Burning coals, which in chapter 10 are to be scattered over the city of Jerusalem in judgment. Even the living creatures feel it. With one pair of wings, they cover their bodies. Covering their their shame, perhaps uh, protecting themselves from the fiery heat of God's holiness. This warrior riding the chariot of the cherubim coming like a windstorm from the north. He is none other than Israel's God, the Lord. And Ezekiel's prophetic message will reflect this awful reality. The Lord himself comes. As Israel's enemy to judge his people. This God is dangerous. You don't want to get too close to this God. You will get burned. I thought of this during our last snowstorm. We had a tree branch knock down our power lines. I don't want to get close to power lines. The thought of just being paralyzed by the shock of all these volts. What was that? Compared to the power of God. You ever ever had lightning strike right next to you? Just the, the crash of it. The, the, you feel like the, the, the waves of the sound are just going to knock you over. You feel small and vulnerable in that moment. That's what God's holiness is like. But there's also a mysterious moral dimension to it. In His holy presence, we not only feel our frailty and our finitude, but also our moral failure. 
Our moral shame. We want to crawl under the floor. We want to hide before His holiness. You see, we feel like we're naked, exposed. For we know that His blazing eyes see right through us. Examining all the thoughts, all the intentions of our hearts. And that is not a pleasant feeling. For we know that what He sees there is not a pretty picture. Our God is frightfully holy. And isn't this what the whole Old Testament was meant to teach the people of Israel with its meticulous prescriptions for worship and the Holy of Holies blocked off lest anyone come in unprepared and be consumed by God's holiness? You see, Ezekiel's vision warns us against a kind of chummy familiarity with God. Oh, he's the man upstairs. He's he's my best buddy. He's the indulgent grandfather in the sky. No, that's not who this God is. Our God is frightfully holy. And I tell you, you will not understand the rest of the book of Ezekiel if you do not get this. You see, it was this vision that changed this young man forever. You will not understand why Ezekiel himself is in exile in Babylon. You will not understand his relentless message of judgment to his fellow Jews in Jerusalem. You will not understand the Lord's demand for righteousness among his people. You will not understand the Lord's hatred of idolatry. You will not understand the Lord's compassionate concern for his own glory. None of this will make sense to you at all if you do not understand That what Ezekiel saw in this vision of God's glory is that our God is frightfully holy. In fact, I'd say that the whole Bible won't make sense to you. I mean, why did the Lord cast Adam and Eve from the garden? Simply because they disobeyed one command. Because our God is frightfully holy. Why did the Lord send a flood onto the world and only save Noah and his family? Because our God is frightfully holy. Why did the Lord send ten plagues on the Egyptians? Because our God is frightfully holy. Why did the Lord have the Israelites wipe out the Canaanites when they entered into the promised land? Because our God is frightfully holy. Why did the Lord send a fire to consume Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange incense to him in worship? Because our God is frightfully holy. Why does Jesus speak of the punishment of hell for those who refuse to repent? Because our God is frightfully holy. And why was it that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, And he prayed that he might not have to drink this cup, that he might not have to die on a cross. And the Lord, his father, says to him, no, there is no other way to rescue my people from their sin. Why did the Lord have to send his own son into the world to die for us? Because our God is frightfully holy. Yes, in Christ. This great and awesome God becomes our father, but he remains a holy father, a righteous father. Ezekiel's vision shows us a God who rides on a fiery storm chariot. He is coming. He is coming to reveal himself in his awesome holiness. And when he does, all those who are unprepared, unprotected will be consumed by him. Where can you flee from this impending judgment of God? Flight is useless. This throne chariot can go anywhere. It can be anywhere. Its eyes, its wheels are covered with eyes. It will be far more frightening than any science fiction alien invasion that you could ever imagine. 
Our God is frightfully holy. Our God is a consuming fire. And those words are not from the Old Testament. They're in the New Testament book of Hebrews. We worship the very same God that Ezekiel saw in this vision. Now, I don't think many people think of God in these terms. People used to, perhaps, but not anymore. There is very little fear of God in our world, and dare I say, perhaps even in the church. But I guarantee you, there would be if people saw what Ezekiel saw. Does this make you uncomfortable? It should. At times when I think of it, it sends shivers down my spine. But this is the truth of who God is. And it's only as we acknowledge the truth that we're in a position to appropriate His grace. Grace through truth, remember. For the gospel message of God's grace reveals to us that this consuming fire of God's holiness, this wrath that flows out of His holiness, That wrath has been poured out and in a mysterious exchange, God has taken it upon himself in the cross of Christ. And now that same New Testament book of Hebrews describes how through the work of Christ, our great high priest who offers himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sin through that cross work of Christ, this fiery throne becomes for us a throne of grace. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, he writes, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The throne of sapphire surrounded by fire has become a throne of grace and we are invited to come freely with confidence. But you see, we can only come when we realize we need a savior. We need God's mercy. Because our God is frightfully holy. Let's pray. Psalm 36. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes. Lord, open our eyes and allow us to see just a glimpse of your glory. But Lord, we we, we pray that you'd be gentle. Because too much we'd be overwhelmed. but as we see something of the awesomeness of your holiness, may we come to appreciate all the more the wonder of your grace. You are a great and glorious God. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, we'll sing just...